Well, we've been having an exciting study in the book of Jude, and we're going to continue today. Of We're going to actually hold on to your yarmulkes. No. Don't be ridiculous. She said, finish it. As if. But we are going to cover three whole verses. All right. Jude 1, there's only one chapter, of course. But I continue to be amazed at how much Jude has packed into this one chapter book. Of course, it was originally a letter to believers. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15, if you'd like to read along with me. These are raging waves of the sea. These, remember the uh, creepy brute beasts? Reminds me of some of the nicknames our president uses for different people. Creepy brute beasts. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Okay, Jude, tell us what you really think. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let's pray. Father, this is another action-packed passage. We ask you to be with us this morning as we dissect this together. Pray for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, illuminate us, teach us. Father, you said you would send, or Lord Jesus, you said you would send the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit to teach us and to lead us into all truth. Bless this time of study in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These, I'm adding that in from another translation. In New King James, just says, raging waves of the sea. These are raging waves of the sea. That's, now, that's not exactly a calming, comforting, peaceful image, is it? I think I shared this before. But I remember many years ago after I watched that movie, The Perfect Storm. Any of you see that? And these guys are out there in the ocean. I believe it was the, the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of the United States, New England, these gigantic waves, and this little boat down there, and the waves are coming down against them. It was just it's pretty intense. And I remember afterwards, driving up tram, uh, tramway towards the mountains, and all, you have that big open space out there, and it, I was freaked out. It's like, wow, I feel like some of those waves could come at me at any moment, you know. Uh, the ocean can be a terrifying thing. And uh, yet, we find that there are many places where it's calming and peaceful, quiet waters. In fact, uh, in the Psalms, uh, David wrote, He leadeth me beside still waters. But this is not exactly a calming, comforting, peaceful image. These are raging waves of the sea. And I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely seen some of these raging waves over the years in pulpits. Albert Barnes, one of my favorite classical Bible commentators, he says, the image here seems to be 
that they were noisy and bold in their professions. Ever seen any of that? And were as wild and ungovernable in their passions as the billows of the sea. We've talked about that over the past several weeks, just the uh, indulging of their own desires and so forth. Then Adam Clark, another one that I really like. Such were those proud and arrogant boasters, those headstrong, unruly, and ferocious men who swept into their own vortex the souls of the simple and left nothing behind them that was not indicative of their folly, their turbulence, and their impurity. A couple of really good uh, descriptions of what we're reading here about these raging waves of the sea. And then he says, foaming up their own shame. Have you ever walked along the ocean and seen all the seaweed and other garbage that spews up on the beach? That's what he's talking about here. Another graphic yet unpleasant image of just the churning waves of the sea and then spitting up, spewing up all of this garbage onto the shore. Isaiah 57, 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. I don't know how many of you paid attention, but I believe it was in the first election of Barack Obama, 2008, and there was a lot of exposure given to the man who had been his pastor for 20 years, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, any of you? He would be a perfect example of what we're reading about here. He's the one who said not... God bless America, but God GD America. Very radical, left-wing. In my opinion, he does not give off the fruit of the evidence of a true believer, and yet he occupies the pulpit of a large church in Chicago. So I think he would be a tremendous example of what we're reading about here, and there are many others, I'm sure, that you can think of as well. So we have raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Jude, using some very graphic language here to describe the way he sees these deceivers, these creepy brute beasts, these false teachers, false prophets. And then he refers to them as wandering stars. Now, a normal star, if you will, is it basically, you know, I know that as the earth rotates and so forth, and we go through the course of a year, 365 days, there is slight repositioning of constellations and so forth, but for the most part, they're pretty constant. It's the earth that's moving, not them. But he's referring to these men as being like shooting stars, comets, meteors. They make a big splash across the sky, and then they disappear like a shooting star. And the ancient mariners, I'm sure you know this, but they would use the stars and the constellations, moon, all of the celestial stuff. (laughs) I feel like Joe Biden now. (laughs) He was trying to quote from the um, Declaration of Independence, I believe it was, and he couldn't remember it. And so he said, you know, that thing that we all talk about. Like shooting stars. So the ancient mariners... Use the stars and constellations to guide them, right? We know that. And many still do. So an unstable, wandering star, like we read about here, cannot offer proper guidance. It's all over the map. It's all over the places. 
shoots across the sky. A good shepherd will provide his sheep with reliable, consistent guidance. How? By rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself, writes Paul to Timothy, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the responsibility of a good shepherd of the flock, to provide reliable, consistent guidance, not like a wandering star. And we talked about this last week with the, the idea of being tossed to and fro or by every wind of doctrine. Remember when he likened them to these clouds, waterless clouds, being carried about by the wind? Same thing here, just wandering stars going from one fad doctrine or teaching to the next. Never really stabilized, never really rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. And then he says, after he gives us this description... Three things here, raging waves of the sea, well, two things, really, foaming up their own shame and then wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That sounds pretty permanent to me. I don't know what you think. And they may look bright and exciting for a brief moment, but according to Jude, who speaks on behalf of God, all Scripture is God-breathed, again, as Paul writes, They may look bright and exciting for a brief moment, but their eternal destination is outer darkness, which is another way of saying hell. That's the amazing thing about Hades, hell, the eternal abode of the wicked, the unrighteous, the non-believing. It's a place of torment where there'll be fire, according to the scriptures, torment, the fire, the flames never cease but at the same time, a place of total darkness. It can be a little scary when you're walking around in the dark and you can't see anything, right? You never know what you're going to stub your toe on, what you're going to trip over. I mean, people have actually died from falling downstairs, tripping over something in the dark. That's why Jesus referred to the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind. But imagine the dual torment, the opposites here of Absolute darkness and yet unquenchable fire. And of course, I think it means more than just physical fire, although I think that's part of the equation. The flaming, fiery torment within of knowing that you could have accepted Christ, you could have known God and lived with Him forever in paradise, but you rejected Him and now for eternity you have to live with the consequences of that decision. That's a fiery torment in and of itself. And the fact that you're totally disconnected from God forever, and really, I believe, from everyone else, because although there will be, unfortunately, millions and millions of people in hell, there won't be any fellowship. You know, these idiots that say, it's cool, man, because I'm going to, when I get to hell, I'm going to party with all my friends. I don't think so. You wish. It's not going to be like that at all. 2 Peter 2.17, we've seen the parallels again between the writings of Peter and his epistles and the things that Jude covers here in his. Second Peter 2.17, he says these, again he's speaking of these same men, these corrupt, creepy, brute beasts, deceivers. These are wells without water. Another graphic analogy, a well without water is useless, isn't it? It's really kind of an accident waiting to happen. 
And in fact, I don't know if it's a well with or without water, but the uh, Muslims claim that the last imam, the 12th imam, is going to emerge up out of a well and um, take over the world. So, but these wells, these are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, very similar to what Jude talked about as we looked at last week, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So here we have confirmation from Jude and from Peter as to the eternal destination of these people. Matthew 25, 30, Jesus has cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if we look back to last week, starting with verse 12, Jude has just given five examples from nature of the destructive nature of these creepy brute beasts. One, he referred to them as spots or blemishes or stains in your love feasts, which were kind of a combination potluck, communion service, fellowship meal. Spots or blemishes or stains on those gatherings. Secondly, clouds without water carried about by the winds. We talked about the fact that clouds without water, they may have an appearance of, of attractiveness, but they offer no real substance or sustenance for those desperately in need of moisture that comes from the clouds to feed all the vegetation, the foliage, the crops, and so forth to bring moisture upon the earth. Thirdly, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. We looked at John 15, that those unproductive branches would be cut off, thrown in the fire. Fourthly, raging waves of the sea we saw here this morning, foaming up their own shame. And fifthly, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. It seems that Judas got a very important and powerful message to deliver to the body of Christ, would you say? I mean, he takes a lot of time, even though it's just one chapter, a lot of really strong descriptive language to make it clear what these people really look like. It reminds me, actually, of the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have ever read that? Every believer should read that book. Would those of you who have read it agree with that statement? It's an amazing book, as are all of the books of C.S. Lewis, written before all the modern liberalism crept into the church. One of the great classic Christian writers of the last century. Screwtape Letters... One of the things it does is it reveals what people really look like through the eyes of God. And it's quite astounding. I highly recommend it. Okay, verse 14. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So Enoch was the seventh in the direct line of descent from Adam, from Seth. This was the godly line. Remember that Abel was a godly son of Adam. Cain was not. Cain killed Abel, and God blessed Adam and Eve with another son to replace the godly Abel, Seth. And so Enoch descended from Seth. He was the seventh in the direct line from descent of descent from Adam. Uh, Adam, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Maha, Mahalil, Jared, and Enoch in Genesis 
Now, there's some significance here because the number seven is the number of perfection or completion. And we read in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God, so he was a godly man. And he was not. Was not what? He was not here anymore. Why? For God took him. So Enoch was a righteous man. Number seven, symbolizing perfection or completion. He walked with God and God took him to heaven. Really, this is the first uh, example in the Bible of how the righteous, and again, we're not righteous because of our good works. We're righteous because of our faith in God. The Bible says that Abraham believed God and he imputed it to him as righteousness. And so all believers will experience the same wonderful fate that Enoch did. God took him. We talk a lot about the rapture of the church around here. We know that's, a, that's, believe it or not, a controversial doctrine in the church. The last time I checked, I think it's only about one-third of believers that really believe in the rapture. I'm not sure what the others believe. It's, like, it's kind of like the never-Trumpers, anyone but Trump, and it's anything but the rapture. Why, I don't know. Why would any believer not want to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air? But... We believe very strongly in the rapture of the church, that God is going to keep this promise. Christ is going to come for us and call us up to meet him in the air. And guess what? Enoch was the first one to have that happen to him. And so Jude here references Enoch, the son of perfection or completion, if you will, who was caught up to be with the Lord. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. We believe very strongly that there will be, at some point in time in human history, sooner rather than later, a generation of believers who will not see physical death. What the Bible describes in that case is what we call a translation, where as you're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, your mortal, corruptible, perishable body will be translated and transformed into an immortal, eternal, incorruptible, imperishable body. Which is exactly what happened to Enoch because these bodies are not built for heaven. And God dwells in unapproachable light. He's a fiery God. And if we were to stand before him in these bodies, we would be incinerated. And that would kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? God wants us to be with him, but... Oh! Oh, oy vey! They disintegrated, kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark when they looked in the ark, remember? Ah, Their eyeballs are melting, their skin's melting off of their bodies. So, there will be a translation, a transformation that takes place. Happened to Enoch, it'll happen to every one of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found. Can you imagine? Everybody looking around, where's Enoch? What happened? Where'd he go? What happened to him? And picture that times millions and millions, if not billions, on this planet when the rapture takes place. And I've always, from a long time now, made this argument. I think it's a pretty good one. Oftentimes, unfortunately, Christians, because we're not perfect, we're simply sinners saved by grace. Sometimes we don't do our best job at portraying God in a positive light. Would you agree with that? 
So, I firmly believe that the greatest revival in the history of the human race will be right after the rapture of the church. Because people will see that in spite of all those flaky Christians that let me down and disappointed me, they were right. And I believe many will be saved right after the rapture. And folks, is our God a God of grace? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't hate the human race. He loves it. He proved it when he sent his only son to die on the cross. And so you might say God's highest priority is to save as many human beings as possible. The devil's highest priority is to destroy as many as possible. And therefore, not only is it God's grace to remove his people from this planet before the final outpouring of his wrath upon the earth, he delivered Noah and his family, did he not? He delivered Lot and his family, minus the wife, excuse me. Pillar of salt, you know the story. Oops, <laughs> she looked back. Over and over, down through the course of human history, we see God protecting and delivering his people from his wrath. Wrath is always for the wicked, not for the righteous. Now, the righteous will suffer persecution. That's happened since the beginning of time, too. I mentioned Cain and Abel. Abel was the first martyr for Jehovah God. God's people have always been persecuted, and God uses that to strengthen us, to build endurance into us, because as we talked about last week, he who endures to the end will be saved. Endurance. Paul talked about finishing the race that God had set before him. So God will use trials, tribulations, difficulties in our lives for good. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God will use all those things, but he never pours out his wrath upon his own children. His wrath is reserved for the wicked. And the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, we read about in Daniel chapter 9, the book of Revelation, Matthew 24, and so forth. The tribulation is all about God's final judgment in this present age upon a wicked, unbelieving world. He was taken... Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Again, we're never going to be perfect in this life, so we please God by simply humbling ourselves before him when we do sin, when we do miss the mark, being quick to confess our sins, to repent, to ask for his forgiveness. Enoch was pleasing to God, his life, because he walked with God, he Loved God, he believed in God, and he was rewarded for that by being caught up to meet God without ever tasting physical death. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. So we're, that tells us right here what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, that Enoch pleased God 
God was pleased because Enoch had faith in him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That takes faith, right? To believe that God really exists. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's walking with God. Diligently seek him. Being serious about pursuing God, following God, walking with God. And that's faith, to believe that you will be rewarded for that. Now, how you're rewarded, when you're rewarded, that's up to God. Sometimes it's in this life. For the most part, it will be in eternity. That's where the truest and the greatest rewards are, not in this life. Any benefits that we get in this life beyond salvation, as far as I'm concerned, it's just frosting on the cake. It's very difficult to tell somebody in a poverty-stricken, disease-ridden, third-world country that if God really loves you, you'll be wealthy. That teaching doesn't fly there. And down through history, some of the most dynamic and powerful men and women of God have been people who have suffered tremendously. And yet, sadly, in our modern, sanitized, liberal, wishy-washy American gospel... People are led to believe that if you are walking with God, everything's going to be perfect all the time. And if it's not, it's because you're in sin. You don't have enough faith. Tell that to these people that are literally dying every day for their faith in countries that are Muslim-dominated, communist-dominated, where they don't have the freedom that you and I have to gather together like this and worship. They have to do it behind closed doors. Are you going to tell them they're in sin for that? That they don't have enough faith because they're being persecuted? That's ridiculous. Without faith, it's impossible to please them. Probably a good idea to pray for faith, huh? I've told you this before, but one of the prayers I pray every, every day, every night, for my family members... Lord, give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. That's what you need. If you're going to become a follower of Christ, if you're going to walk with God like Enoch did and like so many others have down through the centuries, faith is a gift that God gives to those who want it. Do you believe for a moment if somebody says, God, please give me faith, that he's going to say, sorry, Charlie, no way? No, he's going to... That's a prayer that he will answer. Lord, give me faith to trust you, to believe in you. That's a prayer God will answer. And he will also answer that prayer for the gift of repentance, to help me be truly repentant. Not just sorry that I got caught, but sorry that I did something that breaks the heart of God, something that violates his immutable commandments. Because he's perfect and holy and just and righteous in all of his ways. So if God says you should do this, then we should do it, right? If he says don't do that, we shouldn't do it. And when we don't do what he says we should do, and when we do do what he says we shouldn't do, then the proper response is to repent. To turn from that sin. To confess it before him. To ask his forgiveness. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In the Gospels, Jesus said, if you ask 
For a loaf of bread, he's not going to give you a rock. If you ask for a fish, all these things are symbolic of sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give us what we need every day. Not just food, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every level. God is our daily source, our sustenance. And when we ask for those things, he's not going to be mean, capricious. He's going to bless us. We have to believe that. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So Enoch, tremendous encouragement, tremendous example to us as believers of what happens to a believer who's pleasing to God, one who's walking with God, who is exercising his or her faith. You get to go be with them, one way or the other. Even if we do taste physical death, we still have that same promise. Remember what Jesus told the thief on the cross? Here's a guy being crucified, dying on a cross because he was indeed a criminal. And you know what? We're all criminals. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the guy, what did he have? The one thing he had, he was immobilized. He couldn't move. He was doomed. He was dying. But he did have one thing, faith. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, truly I say to you, this day, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't get any better than that. So Enoch, really cool guy, in my opinion, he prophesied about these men also. Interesting, way back thousands of years ago, God gave Enoch supernatural insight into the far future, the end times, the last days, concerning these creepy brute beasts. Oh, I know what that reminds me of. Tucker Carlson was always referring to this guy, Michael Avenatti. He was the lawyer for Stormy Daniels, if you remember her, the famous stripper. And Tucker always, would never use his name. He would always call him the creepy porn lawyer. <laughs> creepy porn lawyer, CPL. Reminds me of these creepy brute beasts. Interestingly, this prophecy quoted here by Jude is found in a book that is not in the Bible. Therefore, it's referred to as non-canonical. The canon of Scripture is that uh, entirety of the Scriptures that have been recognized by church fathers as being inspired, God-breathed, the very Word of God, the book of Enoch was not included. It's non-canonical. And yet, interestingly enough, Jude quotes from it here. Behold, and this would be from Enoch 1.9 if you were to look that up. You can actually purchase the book of Enoch. You can read it online. It has a lot of very interesting things to say about the last days. So when Jude says he prophesied about these men, he prophesied about a lot of things. Very interesting that we're seeing happening even now. It's very interesting. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Some translations read holy ones. Some Bible scholars believe it's referring to the angels. And yet saints clearly refers to believers who would be in heaven with Christ, having been raptured, all the believers that have gone to heaven down through the centuries along with those who've been raptured, which means at this point, everyone has received their glorified eternal body. 
But again, some translations say holy ones. Some scholars say, though, this really means angels. But now, let me see. There's believers in heaven right now, right? There's angels in heaven right now, right? Is anybody going to stay back when Jesus comes to conquer this world? The angel's going to go, ah, we'll just wait here for you, Lord. I don't think so. Are the saints going to say, ah, we'll just wait here for you, Lord? No, because the whole purpose of him coming back is to establish his kingdom on the earth, so we're definitely going to be with him. I think it could very well be both. I, I think it's going to be angels, eternal, immortal human beings. We're all coming together, baby. That's what I believe. And this, of course, this phrase, ten thousands of his saints, means a vast multitude, an innumerable number of believers will accompany Jesus when he returns to execute judgment on the wicked. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, all the way through 16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Obviously, this is Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Yeah, we see that in Revelation chapter 1. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called, hello, the Word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, there again, that's indicative of the saints. That's the garment of a born-again, spirit-filled, blood-bought saint, child of God. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, for you non-equestrians, don't worry. At this point in time, you will be an expert horseman or horsewoman, and you will love it. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. You know, in the book of Genesis, it says that God spoke all things into existence. The theological term is divine Fiat, and we're not talking about the little tiny car. But it means that, and this is where this word of faith thing comes in, you see? That they teach that you and I can also speak things into existence. I'm sorry, folks, God's the only one that can do that. Very deceptive teaching. There is power in the tongue. The Bible clearly talks about that in the book of James. But whenever it talks about the power of the human tongue, it's usually for purposes of evil how evil the human tongue is. And James talks about if you can bridle your tongue, if you can bring it under control, then you're a perfect man, perfect woman. But only God has that power to speak something into existence, something out of nothing. And we see that same power here, the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Obviously, it's not a literal sword. The power of his word is so dynamic that when he comes back to judge this world, all he has to do is speak the word. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him? Okay, where's this Jesus guy? I'm he. Boom! They all fell over. Do you remember that? Do you see just a small example of the power of the word of God, of Jesus Christ? All he says, here I am. Boom! They all. Can you imagine what happens when he comes back with the armies of heaven to judge this world and it's going to be a little more than 
here I am. And there's going to be mass destruction on the Antichrist and his armies and all the kings of the earth who rise up to try to defeat Jesus Christ. I wouldn't recommend that. Don't try that at home. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. No more monkey business. Or as Joe Biden would say, no more malarkey. That was his big cross-country tour, the No Malarkey Tour. But you know, when Jesus comes back, there really won't be any more malarkey. (laughs) He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written... King of kings and Lord of lords. you got to love that. Okay, verse 15. To execute judgment. So Jesus is coming with ten thousands of his saints and innumerable number, multitudes upon multitudes. Why is he coming? Why are we coming with him? To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they've committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, when it says to execute judgment on all, we will not endure the same judgment that the world endures. In fact, I believe our judgment will have already been taken place at the Bema seat. The judgment seat of Christ is where we receive reward or we don't. But it has nothing to do with our entrance into God's eternal kingdom. It has to do with being rewarded for the things we've done here on earth, whether they were wood, hay, and stubble, or gold and silver and precious gems. But since we're coming with him, following him on white horses, the all here can only mean all the wicked who have rejected him, refusing to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and have rebelled against him, either passively or aggressively. You've heard of passive rebellion and aggressive rebellion, right? Passive rebellion, basically, somebody in authority tells you what to do and you just ignore them, right? Passive rebellion. Aggressive rebellion is an active, militant counterattack response against the person trying to exert authority over you. And we see when Christ returns, the whole world will turn to fight against him. There in the book of Revelation. So to execute judgment on all, we're already with him. We're already glorified. We're already immortal. This all refers to all the wicked on the earth who have rejected him, refusing to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and have rebelled against him. To convict all who are ungodly. So there we have a confirmation. All the ungodly. This is not, by the way, the conviction the Holy Spirit bestows upon someone who desires to confess their sins before God. We just talked about this. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation, just like there's a difference between persecution, trials, tribulations, and wrath. Christians will endure trials, tribulations, persecutions. We will never endure the wrath of God. We've been delivered from God's wrath through our faith in Jesus Christ. By the same token, this conviction 
for all who are ungodly, this is when someone is convicted, found guilty. This is the final verdict of a judge in a court of law. Guilty is charged. And again, apart from Christ, that could be said of every one of us. But when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, you confess your sins before Him, you repent, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, you're born again. Now you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, our defense attorney. And when the accuser of the brethren comes along, the devil, and tries to point the finger and condemn us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 8. Jesus says to the Father, No, Father, he's mine, she's mine. They're forgiven. They've been pardoned. Their sentence has been commuted. They are not guilty. But when he comes to convict all who are ungodly, this is not like, okay, one last chance now. No. This is a final determination. Guilty as charged. To convict all who are ungodly among them. Now, one little thing to make note of here. There will be, according to the Scriptures, a remnant of believers on the earth at the return of Christ. There will be some. I don't believe it will be a large number because the Bible clearly teaches that anyone who receives Christ during the tribulation will most likely be martyred by, for their faith, probably by beheading. Isn't that interesting? In modern times, ever since the times of the French Revolution, you haven't really seen anything about beheading except as the, with the rise of the Islamic Jihad. Now it's a commonplace thing. It'll be interesting to see from the balcony how that comes into play. But there will be some believers. Matthew 25 talks about separating the sheep from the goats. The sheep, the mortals, you and I will be immortal. I like that. The mortals who are here on the earth at the return of Christ, who have put their faith in Him, will be brought into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, to procreate, repopulate the earth because the vast majority of people on the earth will no longer be alive. And the goats, the ones that are still alive, are going to be cast out. This is God's game plan for the tribulation, the millennium. All who are ungodly among them, so there will be some who are counted as righteous and godly who are allowed to enter the millennial kingdom of Christ, where we will be ruling and reigning with Him for a thousand years. So often we kind of want to rest on our laurels. We think, well, I'm just glad I'm saved, you know. I don't really have much ambition beyond that in terms of, you know, being a mighty warrior for God. I'll let the Franklin Grahams and the late great Billy Graham and others like that, I'll let them do the heavy lifting. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy my salvation. But the things that we do here in this life will determine the responsibilities we have in God's millennial kingdom. So, if you'd rather not be a super-duper pooper-scooper in the millennium. <laughs> when I was a kid in Scottsdale, Arizona, I was in the marching band. We used to march in the parade every year, the big 
Parada del Sol, Parade of the Sun. And there were a lot of horses, as you might imagine. This is the westmost western town, Scottsdale. All the sheriffs and everybody riding horses and other people. And so they'd have these guys dressed up like clowns, and they were the super-duper pooper scoopers. They would come behind the horses and, you know, scoop the poop. So, now, at the end of the day, as long as we get there, that's the main thing, but it would be nice to have a little better job than that, wouldn't it? Anyway, a little levity here. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. So, folks, at the end of this life, one of two things will happen. One, God will pronounce us not guilty by virtue of the fact that all of our sins, which are also known as what? Ungodly deeds. All of our sins have been washed away by the precious blood of Christ. We will then be welcomed into his glorious eternal kingdom. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that God will pronounce us or them, not us if we're believers, but them, guilty for holding us, again, depending on God knows each heart, holding us or them accountable. So here's two options. One, all of our sins are covered, washed away, removed by the blood of Christ, or... We will be personally held accountable for all of our ungodly deeds by virtue of the fact that we, or they, refuse to accept Jesus and the price he paid on the cross for our or their sins. So it's basically two options. You can receive the precious gift of forgiveness and salvation because Jesus paid the price on the cross of Calvary or you can say, no, I'm going to do it my way, and you're going to have to carry the weight and the burden for every single sin you've ever committed. And the Bible says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. It seems like a no-brainer to me. What do you think? We just wish, hope, and pray that more people would see the light. All their ungodly deeds in an ungodly way. Notice that Jude uses this phrase ungodly four times in this one verse, emphasizing the absolute vile, wretched nature of all human beings apart from Christ. You know, that whole expression, holier than thou, that's ridiculous. Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. But people, again, have this misunderstanding because we... Speak the truth in, in love, hopefully. We stand for the truth. God's word is the truth. But then when they see that, well, our lives don't totally measure up, how could they? Jesus is the only sinless, perfect son of God. We will never be able to achieve that in this life. And yet, unfortunately, people see that in us, and they write God off, which is really foolish. The creator of all things, the holy, righteous, perfect, eternal God, why could, we, why could we or how could we ever compare any human being to him? There is none righteous, no, not one. Psalms 14, 1 through 3, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand. Do you ever feel that way? Does anybody get it? To see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing. That's why all this teaching about self-esteem and self-worth and you've got to learn to love yourself is a bunch of hogwash. What you've got to do is learn to love God. And you will find your value and your worth in Him. He's the one who's placed value upon you. He created you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And even though I know that in me dwells no good thing, but when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of me, then something good does dwell in there. But it's not me. It's Him. It's God. We do people a great disservice by teaching them you know, you've got to learn to love yourself and forgive yourself. I think the devil does that. I think the devil loves himself. What do you think? You think the devil forgives himself for all the horrible things he's done? Absolutely. You want to be like the devil? No. The Bible tells us we're to put no confidence in the flesh. And when you teach someone to love themselves, to forgive themselves, and to build up their self-esteem, that's exactly what you're doing. You're telling them, teaching them to put confidence in their flesh. That is a recipe for disaster. Now, there's a balance in all that. I, you know, especially I pray for my kids, my grandkids. I want them to do well in life. I want to, to accomplish things, to feel good about those accomplishments. But the world has taken it way too far. Again, anything to steer people away from God, right? And basically can become your own God. That's what secular humanism is. You're your own God. You worship yourself. Idolatry. We are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So again, see, people try to feel better about themselves by doing good works, but God says all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. How did Enoch please God? By having faith in him. There's absolutely nothing we can do in this life to impress God. Hey, God, are you impressed yet? We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Finally, Jude writes, and of all the harsh things, this is why Jesus is coming with judgment, this is why Jesus is pouring out his wrath on an unbelieving world. Finally here, of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. One thing to keep in mind, if people speak harshly of God's children, it's just the same as if they had spoken against him. I would propose to you, because Jesus' name is the name above all names, the only name given under heaven by which man must be saved that it's the most maligned, mocked, and cursed name in all of human history. And although they get away with it now, some might wonder, why doesn't God just zap them, nuke them when they curse him, when they use his name as a profanity, 
Well, it's going to happen. Here it is. At the end of the age, at the end of the tribulation, for those who have still not repented and turned to God, there will be judgment. But again, not only if they've spoken harshly against the Lord, but if they malign and slander and curse God's people. Now, if they do that to your kids, do you take it personally? You know, nobody talks to my kid like that. Nobody talks about my kid like that. They might be a brat, but you better not say it. Right? Right? And some believers are brats. <laughs> but that's God's business. He deals with his own kids, right? You don't mess with God's kids. And if you do, there will be a payday. It often seems that God doesn't hold people accountable for their ungodliness, and that can be a stumbling block for believers, for their ungodliness and animosity towards Him. But think again. All things will be dealt with in His good time. Right? Finally, Matthew 12, 35 and 36. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, says Jesus, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it. When? In the day of judgment. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for these powerful, dynamic words of Jude, delivered to first century believers and then preserved for every generation, including our generation. Father, this is a very intense little book, but very important. Because, Father, sometimes it seems like both believers and non-believers do not necessarily take these things as seriously as we should. We do thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. The Lord, in spite of our sinfulness, our absolute depravity, you loved us so much that you were willing to let your only son suffer and die on the cross of Calvary that we might have eternal life proving how much you love the people of this world. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you, God. And Lord, help us to reach out to those around us, because the time is short. And we see the fate that awaits those who re refuse you, who reject you. Lord, we thank you that we have the wonderful, amazing example of Enoch, because he walked with you. He was caught up to meet you in heaven where he's even now dwelling with you for all eternity. And that's the same wonderful destination that awaits all who put their faith in you, Lord. We thank you for that. And Father, I do want to pray as we close this morning, if there's anyone here today that does not have an assurance of salvation, they don't really know where they stand with you, God. They're not really sure if they've been born again or not. They're in doubt. Lord Jesus, you didn't die on the cross so that we could have doubt. You died so that we could have an assurance of forgiveness and salvation. So I pray if there's anyone here like that, that they would come today, meet with someone in the prayer team, and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. We also pray, Father, for those who may be struggling with illness, or whatever it might be, Lord, that 
all those feeling and sensing a need here today for a touch from you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that they would come and receive prayer this morning as we close. We thank you for this time together. Pray your blessings upon the rest of this day as we seek to think about you, dwell upon you, continue to fellowship with you, Lord, throughout the day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.